Illinois sees its first bond rating upgrade in over two decades. And Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin joins me to talk about news from the local housing market, including how a proposed ordinance would require banks to report their record of lending in majority black or Latino neighborhoods compared with majority white communities. For every dollar they lend in white neighborhoods in Chicago, they're lending about 13 cents in Hispanic neighborhoods, 12 cents in black neighborhoods. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, July 1st. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I am joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, as I am every week, here to talk about news from the local housing market. Hey, Dennis, how are you today? Great, Amy, how are you? I'm well. We're getting closer to coordinating our shirts. We both went patterns this time. We could trade. Next week, we'll wear the opposite (laughs) shirts. That's exactly what we're going to do. All right, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about this week. Let us start with um, a story that you wrote about how Chicago housing lenders want data from banks about equity in mortgage lending. Tell me about this. This grows out of uh, questions that city council members and housing activists have about lending of mortgages in black and brown neighborhoods versus white neighborhoods. This all grows out of uh, some extensive reporting by WBEZ and City Newsroom in 2018 that showed that uh, uh, banks lend a whole lot more money in white neighborhoods. Uh, For every dollar they lend in white neighborhoods in Chicago, they're lending about 13 cents in Hispanic neighborhoods, 12 cents in black neighborhoods. So in January of this year, the Housing and Real Estate Committee, led by Alderman Harry Osterman, called for a hearing. Everybody, I think, was surprised by these figures. And Alderman Osterman called for a hearing, invited 10 big banks to come and speak about their records. And only one agreed to show up. Uh, And so the, the hearing, as reported by WBEZ, was much more about people testifying that they had been refused for a mortgage and that sort of thing than banks saying, here are our numbers. So Now this is the next step. A group of housing organizations, including Neighborhood Housing Services, the Woodstock Institute and others, and Alderman Osterman are proposing supporting an ordinance called the Equity and Lending Ordinance that would require banks that do business with the city of Chicago. If you're a bank that either holds or wants to hold some of Chicago's billions of dollars in deposits, then you would, under this ordinance, need to post very detailed data on where you're lending uh, and also, I think significantly, where you're not lending. Some of this is data that banks already need to post, but this ordinance would expand what they have to post. And for example, where you're not lending, you'd be saying, this is the number of refusals we did per census tract in the city. Here's the racial breakdown and here are the reasons people are being denied. That's what the ordinance would require banks to post. 
that's really kind of where it ends because a city can't legislate. The city couldn't then say, okay, we need you to lend more. We are requiring you by law to lend more in these black and Hispanic neighborhoods because banks are regulated by the federal government. So what Alderman Osterman told me is that he really sees this as a way to uh, promote transparency, to let people see what's going on at the bank's level. Then they would look at this and they might be able to determine whether we want the city wants to make a bank its depository based on these records. But again, the city can't tell a bank, you have to do this, this, or this. They could say, we see from your record that you're not lending in the neighborhoods we think need investment. We're not so interested in making you a depository. Right. And tell me that number again. For every dollar lent in a white neighborhood. 13 cents in a Latino neighborhood, 12 in a black neighborhood. That's, That's really stunning. It is. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're all aware that there are extreme inequities, that there is massive disinvestment in some neighborhoods, not only of Chicago, but of all our cities. And so what Alderman Osterman is looking at is how do we correct that? But in this case, they don't actually have a lever to correct it. They have a lever to gather information. Uh, and what, what he told me is that he thinks the transparency is enough, that people would look at these numbers and they would say, well, Bank X, we're not very interested in having you be a depository because you're not working so hard in these other neighborhoods. Or Bank X would say to Bank Y, hey, uh, here's how we're working in these neighborhoods, maybe you'd like to do it too. Here, here's an initiative we have in some black and brown neighborhoods, maybe you'd like to do it too. But again, the, the city can't tell banks, you have to do this. The city would be in a position of saying, if you aren't doing X, we won't do Y, we won't make you a depository. So for now, it's kind of a matter of putting it in the court of public opinion. Right. So I asked Alderman Osterman, do you think that this becomes like a scorecard? These banks get an A for what they're doing in black and brown neighborhoods and these banks get a D or an F. And he said he doesn't think that will happen. Also, uh, as, as I said in the story, I spoke to the Bankers Association, the Illinois Bankers Association. They don't like this, not surprisingly. They feel that the banking industry, like other industries, is trying to correct inequities that have built up over the years. But they also feel that if you add this reporting mechanism, which doesn't exist at the federal level, if you add this reporting mechanism, then banks will be discouraged from wanting to be depositories. And what they said is that might especially include smaller banks, which may be black or Latino owned banks, because, you know, the more paperwork there is, the more a small business uh, is scared away. That's so interesting. So uh, looking ahead on the timeline here, what are what are the next steps that we can expect to see? Don't know as of now. It goes to the Finance Committee. It started in the resident in the Real Estate and Housing Committee. It goes to the Finance Committee. And uh, Alderman Osterman, the primary person I spoke to, though there are other people in the story as well, um, Alderman Osterman said the, the timeline is not yet solid because there needs to be discussion at these various levels. He also has communicated with the banks, uh, but as of the time we spoke, had heard nothing back from them on this particular proposal to say nothing of their no-show at the, the January hearings. Sure. Well, well, we'll check back in on that topic. I think that's really interesting. 
kind of related to that. You wrote about how West Woodlawn is kind of the epicenter of doing some different initiatives to try to boost black home ownership. Tell me about that. You know, I liked what I saw there. This It's actually pretty exciting. Um, there are at least four, probably many more, there are at least four different developers all working within a small area, uh, the area around sort of 64th, 65th and Langley and Evans, right around in there building mostly two flats, not only two flats. Some of them are building on land that was formerly owned by the Cook County Land Bank, which we've discussed before. Some are buying them just at, on the open market from estates, that sort of thing, and trying to really bring in affordable housing, privately built, privately funded, affordable housing that would boost not only black home ownership in the neighborhood, but occupancy of the neighborhood, generally building on uh, empty lots or rehabbing derelict buildings. So you're bringing more people into the neighborhood. And uh, all of these developers are black. And so it's sort of a, it's a question of developing by us, for us, in a neighborhood where we've been for a long time and want to help stabilize it. A couple of the developers I talked to talked about how, you know, well, one of them said these words, the change isn't coming unless we start the change. And, um, and, it's, and it's, really, it's really impressive to see them all sort of working in this one neighborhood because you're going to make more of a difference if there's this cluster of redevelopment. And one of the things that I think is important, I mentioned two flats. Several of these involve two flats. Two flats, of course, a great Chicago tradition in wealth building because I, I own a two flat and I live in one unit and rent the other unit out and that helps defray my mortgage and it builds up my household wealth. And several of these projects are two flats, either rehab or new construction, new black homeowners. Yeah. Well, we'll have to check back on the neighborhood, I'm sure, as, as these different developers start to, you know, make a dent and turn over more and more houses. We'll see how that neighborhood, how it's going. Yeah, only a few sales so far, several projects underway. One just broke ground this week, just uh, Tuesday. And, and I think in the next couple of years, there will probably be more to report. Yeah, great. Well, hopefully we'll still be doing this in a couple of years, right? Surely. I can't retire, can you? No, never, ever. <laughs> never in a million. We'll be doing this for decades. All right. So. Um, so now let's talk about Chicago home prices. We've talked about that topic many times here together. Um, but now, looks like they're rising at five times the pre-pandemic rate. That's quite a bit. Tell me. This is from the Case-Shiller Index. So when it came out this week, I took a look. It's hard right now to compare anything this year to last year because 2020 was so weird. Home prices are rising fast. You and I have been talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. Home prices are rising really fast. But I looked at uh, the latest Case-Shiller data, which shows that home prices went up 9.9% in April from a year ago. Of course, this, this data just came out in late June, but it's for April. 9.9% um, from a year ago. So I compared that to the figure for the figure that was reported at the same time in 2019. This is 5.2 times the 2019 figure. This is the second month in a row when the data for 2021 has been five times what it was in 2019, which is the way I concluded that home prices are rising at five times the rate they were before the pandemic. Nationwide, home prices are rising at about four times. So we're actually, it looks as if we have speeded up more than the rest of the nation, which I think is sort of an interesting thing to see. Part of it is we started from farther behind. 
the, the kind of demand, the kind of factors that are fueling the market in Chicago now are really fueling the market nationwide, low interest rates, pandemic moves. And so it seems as if we're maybe we're catching up, which has, is a long time coming. What would be the expected outcome once we do kind of catch up? Because for so long, we've kind of been doing our own thing and not really going along with what the rest of the country is doing. Chicago's kind of marched to it, the beat of its own drummer for a while, home sales wise. So then say we catch up, what's that going to look like? Well, the primary thing that would look like is that a couple of years ago, we were, I mean, we really had an enormous number of underwater homeowners. You probably remember seriously underwater homeowners who truly could not afford to move. Chicago had more of those than New York and LA combined. We're pulling our way up out of that, and that would be good news. But the other thing uh, about catching up is we don't necessarily want to really catch up with the rest of the nation. So our prices went up 9.9% in April. Nationwide, they went up 14.6%. In three cities, um, Phoenix, San Diego, and Seattle, prices were up more than 20% in April from a year before. They're starting to look like bubbles, like they're in a bubble, right? I mean, and you can imagine the homeowners, we're talking about people being priced out of certain areas in Chicago. Imagine you're in Phoenix, San Diego, Seattle. I mean, home prices are rising so fast, you may be thinking, I got to move to Chicago at this point. Um, So it will be very interesting to see if they start to ease and we don't, or if we all start to ease or what happens in the next several months. But it looks more and more to me, as if we're not in the bubble territory that some other cities seem to be in. Now, you mentioned San Diego and Seattle. Do I remember correctly that pre-pandemic, those were two of kind of the four, LA and um, San Francisco being the other two, that had kind of had to de-escalate some pricing and drop pricing because there was just such a demand for housing and such a, I mean, there was just so much going on and they had risen and risen and risen. Do I remember correctly that prices had started to drop there? Prices had stopped growing as fast. I think Seattle, uh, with its increase in April, hit had the biggest increase it's had in the history of Case-Shiller, which goes all the way back to 1987. Five cities nationwide, not all three of these, Charlotte and a few others, hit, had their biggest price increases ever. So this is, so. in answer to your question, they were rising really fast in the 2018, 2019, when we were rising very slowly. And they, and it started to sort of cool. And that's when we started hearing about people are moving out of San Francisco to Sacramento or far, far uh, east of of San Francisco and things like that. Then during the pandemic, we heard even more of it because people were buying outside cities. And now they're back to booming again, not not San Francisco at this level, but San Diego, Phoenix, Seattle, these places where I might be moving if I, well, Phoenix and San Diego would be places I might move if I don't have to live near my office anymore. And let me just put in a um, shout out for San Diego where I grew up and never bought a house. Imagine how wealthy I would be today. My sister bought a house in San Diego, still owns it. And obviously the market she lives in is working much faster than than the market I own a house in Chicago. Let's switch to talking about some very particular houses. Let's start with um, Khalil Mack's house. Uh, We get a look inside his Glencoe mansion. Tell me about this one. 
Yeah, this was this is kind of interesting. Just a couple of months ago, we reported that he had bought a nearly seven, a six point eight million dollar condo downtown. Well, apparently he's completed the move to downtown because now he's put the mansion in Glencoe on the market. He bought this in 2018, right about the time he joined the Bears, within a few weeks of joining the Bears. Um, he paid three point seven five million for it in 2018. He's now asking five million. Uh, I don't know that there were improvements made, but it's a really nice house. Uh, it's in East Glencoe, sort of almost walkable to the beach, certainly walkable to Sheridan Road and downtown shopping and dining and things like that. You might ride your bike to the beach. There's only one public beach in Glencoe. And uh, it's really nice. It's on a big property. It's a big house built in 2018, asking, as I said, uh, $5 million. There haven't been any $5 million sales in over a year in Glencoe, and this has been a super hot market. But what I did see is that home sales in general, not at $5 million, but overall, have more than doubled. This is another example of what the pandemic has done. Home sales have more than doubled in Glencoe. I'm just staring at this kitchen, this picture of this kitchen. I mean, look at all that storage, that island. Like my eyes went right to that island storage because I have zero storage in my kitchen. I'm like, ooh, look at that. Pretty. I mean, it's it's nearly new. You know, he bought it in 2018. It clearly has been well kept. I don't know much about Khalil Mack's life, but I'm imagining he doesn't live there or didn't live there 12 months out of the year, probably only part time. So it, it looks like it's nearly new. It's very stylish. It's really pretty. It's on a big lot. Uh, it hasn't sold yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're reporting at some point that it's the next big sale in Glencoe. And that tub. Oh, that you know how I like ooh and ah over gorgeous bathtubs. That is a beautiful bathtub. Yeah, but aside from the ooing and aahing, I have to sort of say, ooh, I, I, the big TV screen. I'm sorry, if you've got a big soaking tub like that, read a book, drink champagne. I didn't even notice the TV screen because I was so busy looking at the tub. Like, ooh, look at that. That's beautiful. It's not as big as the one I saw in a house recently that was, that was essentially the size of those big bathroom mirrors. It looked like... Um, it looked like a bed sheet for a television, which just, I'm sorry, that drives me crazy. I mean, that's really committing to your shows at that point. <laughs> you can even take a bath without, you know, bachelorettes on or whatever. Um, I've never even watched that show one time. It's like, I know nothing about it. So anyway. Oh, sure, Amy. Sure. No, I haven't. But I know people are like rabid fans of it. That's all I know because my social media feed like fills with commentary about it. That's all I know. Everything I know about it, I learned from Twitter. All right. I've been dying to talk to you about this next house. I've been so excited since I saw this story. Mr. T's former Lake Forest mansion sells- Hang on, this segment needs a theme song. I think every segment needs a theme song, but this one has an obvious one, the A-Team theme song. Mr. T, he sold his house. Tell me about this. Mr. T actually never sold it. He deeded it to his girlfriend and years later she sold it. Um, and that's in the 1990s. But the reason, the reason we refer to this as Mr. T's mansion is that it was highly publicized around the world. The incident where Mr. T, at the height of his fame, he's a movie and TV star at the time. He's on the A-Team and other things. Um, he buys a mansion in Lake Forest and he starts chainsawing down the old oak trees, the probably pre-settlement oak trees on the property. And he claims that it's because they're annoying his allergies. You know, he was called B.A. Baracus on the A-team for, for having a bad attitude, B.A. And he 
he growled and barked like he had a bad attitude. So he's cutting down these trees. He gets a lot of publicity. And um, then, as I said, he, he deeded it to his girlfriend. And it's only, that's in the late, in the 1990s. It's only after about 2015 that those trees are replaced by the sellers who have just sold it. Um, it went through a couple of owners. One uh, was going to do a mass, the one who bought it for Mr. T's girlfriend was going to do a massive rehab. The building is a century old, so it needed work anyway. Um, didn't complete the rehab before selling it to a big developer who do, who starts this massive, lavish rehab and is going to sell it. Of that foreclosure, these current sellers buy it, and they put it on the market in 2017 at nearly $8 million. It is fabulous. They invited me up. I got to look. Um, we walked around, and, and they really had done a lot. They added a big garage with an apartment overhead uh, over the garage. They planted 150 mature trees, not little saplings, not little things the size of your pinky finger, but 150 mature trees to replace what had been lost more than 20 years ago with Mr. T. Uh, and they put it on the market for $7.95 million. That's uh, 2017, and it sold this week for $5 million. Well, I'm, I'm excited for you that you got to go in a house that used to belong to Mr. T. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I, I wish I'd had, you know, a, a mohawk I could put on or something. But it's not yeah, too it, late, Dennis. That's a thing you can do. That's a thing you can absolutely achieve. <laughs> <laughs> a mohawk? I'll, I'll work on that for next week. I think I could make that work. You could definitely make that happen. And then <laughs> we get to play the A-Team song again. It works. We get to play the A-Team song again, yeah. All right. So what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Well, one of the things I'm looking at is uh, where we know that inventory is very tight. Um, that is something we've discussed quite a bit. In a couple of the suburbs, inventory is so tight, it essentially doesn't exist. Um, and I'm writing about that. Sounds good. Well, we will meet you right back here next time and talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, food trucks are back, but will the Loop lunch crowd show up? We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. For the first time in more than 20 years, Illinois' debt has been upgraded by one of the major rating agencies. In a statement, Moody's Investors Service moved Illinois' general obligation debt from BAA3 to BAA2. The same upgrade applied to sales tax debt floated by the McCormick Place owner Metropolitan Pier and Exposition Authority, known as McPeer, whose income is partially dependent on state finances. Overall, Moody's upgraded its view on $33 billion of debt, citing a quote, material improvement in state finances. The ratings upgrade was immediately praised by Governor J.B. Pritzker. The state's credit rating has been declining for many years, but particularly dropped off amid a budget standoff during the tenure of his predecessor, Bruce Rauner. Moody's itself has not upgraded Illinois debt since June of 1998, nearly a quarter of a century ago. Other major ratings agencies in recent weeks have changed their outlook on Illinois debt to positive, but stopped short of an actual upgrade.
Wilson Sporting Goods has picked a local space for its very first store in its 108-year history. The Chicago-based company is preparing to open a more than 2,200-square-foot store in mid-July in the Gold Coast, the first of many retail locations that Wilson plans in the U.S. and China. The company is taking over space on Rush Street, previously occupied by Vineyard Vines. Wilson, which historically has sold its products through other retailers or online, is expanding into physical retailing at an uncertain time time for brick-and-mortar stores. Many big brands closed stores earlier in the pandemic as consumers increased their online purchases. Candy company Ferrara, maker of Nerds, Laffy Taffy, and other products, is opening a packing and shipping facility in DeKalb. Sylvia Garcia, acting director of the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, told Cranes that at 1.6 million square feet, the facility is one of the largest in the state. And it joins a growing number of companies setting up shop in DeKalb, including Facebook and Nestle. The new complex marks a $100 million investment for Ferrara. A company spokesperson told Cranes that the company will eventually employ about 500 people and that they've already filled about half of those jobs, largely hourly manufacturing positions. She also said that construction of Ferrara's facility was underway pre-pandemic, but the growth of the business over the last year, quote, reinforced the need for an expanded footprint. Indeed, many consumer packaged goods companies did see revenues increase during the pandemic, as more people stayed home and some turned to comforting and indulgent foods. Ferrara's revenue was $2.5 billion in 2020, up 4.2% over the prior year. That, according to Crane's list, of Chicago's largest privately held companies, and at the same time, a shift toward online shopping and direct-to-consumer sales sparked a greater reliance on distribution centers. According to the National Confectioners Association, the candy industry's national retail sales come to about $36 billion a year. The confectionery industry directly employs more than 14,000 people in Illinois and indirectly employs almost 38,000 through supplier and other roles. That also, according to the trade group. Economic output in the state is $5.5 billion. Ferrara's new complex includes two facilities, a 400,000-square-foot packaging center where product is put into its final packaging and a 1.2-million-square-foot distribution center, which serves more than half of the U.S. The Chicago Food Truck Festival is returning to Daly Plaza after a pandemic hiatus. Six food trucks will assemble at the plaza every Friday from July 30th to October 15th, according to a statement from the city. This will be the sixth year the city's Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection has sponsored the gathering. Workers have been slowly coming back downtown for the past few months. Worker occupancy in downtown offices, which in April was about 16 percent of normal, is currently at about 30 percent, according to the Chicago Loop Alliance. The group predicts that number could be more like 50 percent by the end of July. And restaurants in the Loop are still only bringing in a fraction of the revenue they did pre-pandemic. Some downtown restaurant operators told Cranes they expect it will take more than a year for their lunch business to fully recover. In any case, the food truck lineup is set to be released before the first gathering at the end of July, according to the city. Previous years have included Fat Shallot, Harold's Chicken, and others. Food truck operators who are interested in participating need to submit their completed applications by Friday.
And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.